Hello, this is Father John Arnold, and welcome back to Oro Valley Catholic. Exciting development at Oro Valley Catholic this episode. I am officially rebranding the parable of the prodigal son. Henceforth, it will be known as the parable of the two sons. You know, the remember the prodigal son's the guy that wants everything from his dad and goes off to a far-off land where he blows it all on wine, women, and song that ends up sleeping with the pigs. He just goes down into an unclean lifestyle. Uh, well, we'll say, how about a sinful lifestyle? And then the older brother who stays at home is jealous of how dad receives the younger brother. And so it's worthwhile and refuses to have dinner with him. And so it's worthwhile to understand why it's be, I'm calling it the parable of the two sons. Do you remember last week, uh, the first reading was from Exodus, and it was about Moses encountering God in the burning bush. And that image of a bush that is burning but not consumed is the ancient image of God's relationship to the world, that God is present in the world, but he doesn't compete with, he doesn't destroy nature. And so how we take that as Catholics, and St. Thomas Aquinas said it very clearly, grace builds on nature. And so these impulses that you and I have about relationship, either we want to be free from restriction or we can be very legalistic, we have to pay attention to these kinds of impulses, these ways of thinking about morality, conscience, and God, because it really affects how we see our relationship with God and with each other. And so it's important when we compare that story about God in the burning bush and then the story that we'll have from uh, the Gospel of Luke this week about the prodigal son's father, uh, this father who is welcoming his sons and wants everybody to be happy in his house, uh, but be part of the family that we're really talking about a theological notion of God ad intra and God ad extra. Ad intra means God as he is in himself. Ad extra is God in his relationship to creation, including human beings. And then how is it that this God that has this interior life that's revealed to us by Jesus through the Trinity numerous times, the Father's voice, the Holy Spirit, the references to the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, and then that the Son is the Son of the Father who says, I am, uh, how many times in uh, the various Gospels, as a reference back to that story from Exodus chapter 3 about the burning bush who is asked by Moses what his name, what the name of God is. How am I to refer to you, burning bush? And the burning bush says, I am who am. That's why Jesus says, I am numerous times, because he is identifying himself with God. That's where we get the teaching of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God, three divine persons, that's at the heart of the Nicene Creed that we say at Mass on Sunday and Solemnities, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and it goes on from there, that so much is about God ad intra. At the end, when I believe in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, 
It's this God ought intra and how he relates to the world through the church. That is, God ought extra. How does this God, who is not the world, but does not compete with the world, he doesn't burn up the bush, how does he relate to you? What does it mean for you to have a personal relationship with the risen Jesus, the Son of God? Because you ought to pay attention to this story from Luke because it's the parable of two sons. Neither one of them relates to dad very well. And, but if you look at what their dysfunction is, it sets the parameters for how a son ought to relate to God the Father. And of course, we're talking about Jesus. You know what's interesting about this story in Luke, the, the parable of the two sons, is that if you remember the Old Testament, the relationship of father to son is so critical in the book of Genesis. And in faith, all roads lead to Genesis because it's about the basic dysfunction of human beings. So do you remember Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel? They don't relate well to their parents. One kills the other and then is banished. And then if you remember, Abraham has Isaac, and Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Even Abraham had a son by a slave woman, Ishmael. And so the, the sons, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob's sons, I mean uh, Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau, Abraham's sons, uh, Isaac and Ishmael, these are sons that do not get along. And so when Jesus is talking about the parable of the two sons, he's referring back to this dysfunction in the human community. And to remember that the book of Genesis ends with Jacob and his 12 sons, where the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel come from, and uh, all of 11 or 10, I guess at the time, gang up on the youngest, Joseph, who has this amazing technicolor dream coat, if you remember the Donnie Osmond version of, J of Joseph and his amazing technicolor dream coat. That dream coat, that favorite son garment, you'll hear that when I read the parable of the two sons, because this son who had once slept with the pigs is given his father's finest robe. It's a reference back to Joseph who had been rejected by the other sons being clothed in the amazing Technicolor dream coat. I will not be singing, friends, so that's your blessing for Lent. But the two sons, what they say, what they do, is instructive to us how we think about how we relate to God. How is it that God ad intra, God as himself, interacts with me, John Arnold, and with you as a baptized believer? And this is through our baptism. God relates to us through our consciences. How it is that we respond as free sons of God to his voice. Let's take a minute and talk about conscience. Because cultivating our conscience, having a healthy conscience, separ separates us from people who just get sucked down into some dark places that the interior life could go. We relate to God freely through his moral law. We don't run from it. We're not slaves to it. Think of those two things. We aren't free from the moral law, and we're not slaves to it either. Cultivation of the conscience is the cultivation of true freedom to be who God made you to be. 
So let's turn now to the gospel and talk about the parable of the two sons. I'm doing this podcast in anticipation of the fourth Sunday of Lent. Um, It's where we're midway through Lent and we can see the sunrise of Easter coming. And so the church gives us from Luke chapter 15, this gospel. Tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to listen to Jesus. But the Pharisees and scribes began to complain, saying, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So to them, Jesus addressed this parable. A man had two sons, and the younger son said to his father, Father, give me the share of your estate that should come to me. So the father divided the property between them. And after a few days, the younger son collected all his belongings and set off to a distant country, where he squandered his inheritance on a life of dissipation. When he had freely spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he found himself in dire need. So he hired himself out to one of the local citizens and sent him to his farm to tend the swine. And he longed to eat his fill of the pods on which the swine fed, but nobody gave him any. Coming to his senses, he thought, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food to eat? But here I am, dying from hunger. I shall get up and go to my father, and I shall say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Treat me as you would treat one of your hired workers. So he got up and went back to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father caught sight of him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But his father ordered his servants, Quickly bring the finest robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Take the fattened calf and slaughter it. Then let us celebrate with a feast, because this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. Then the celebration began. Now the older son had been out in the field, and on his way back, as he neared the house, he heard the sound of music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what this might mean. And the servant said to him, Your brother has returned, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf, because he has him back safe and sound. He became angry, and when he refused to enter the house, his father came out and pleaded with him. He said to his father in reply, Look, all these years I served you, and not once did I disobey your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat to feast on with my friends. But when your son returns, who swallowed up your property with prostitutes, for him you slaughter the fattened calf. And the father said to him, My son, you're here with me always. Everything I have is yours. But now we must celebrate and rejoice, because your brother was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So that's one of the great Gospels. You know, it only appears in Luke, but it's important to remember who the original audience was. The Pharisees and the scribes were there while Jesus was having dinner with public sinners. Public sinners are people that everybody knows as a sinner. 
like, oh, you know, the, the criticisms of President Biden and the support of abortion. That's sinful. Um, but in Jesus's story, it's the uh, prostitutes that are down on the corner. It's the tax collectors that work for the occupiers. And so when Jesus tells the story of the parable of the two sons, he's really addressing, it says in the gospel, the scribes and Pharisees, because they're the older son in the story that refuses to eat with the prostitutes and the tax collectors. This is a really gutsy story, but I think you already get that. And the way that the early church used this as it moved out beyond the confines of Israel, where scribes and Pharisees were not such a big deal anymore, is the relationship between Gentile and Jew. Because in the first son's story, he goes out uh, to live with the pig farmers. And friends, there are no pig farmers in Israel. You do not farm pigs. Even when Jesus throws those devils out, casts devils out into the herd of swine, He's across the Sea of Galilee in Greek territory where there are pig farmers. So you see as the, young, the younger son falls into this unclean life, sleeping with the pigs, um, that it's also really directed uh, towards the Gentiles and how it is that God uh, looks at the Gentiles. My dad used to always tell us as kids, he says, I know a lot of people that think you kids aren't fit to sleep with the pig. But I always t defend you and say, oh, yes, they are. And, of course, Dad was right. And so let's take a moment and talk about the two sons. But talk about them not in a first century setting, because this has uh, all the marks of all the early preaching of the church on it. But let's talk about it in our current setting uh, 20, 21 centuries later. So think about these two sons as two modern representatives of, um, of the way secular society thinks. Son number one, what does he think freedom is? He thinks that freedom is getting his stuff, which is just like consumerism. He wants what's coming to him, what his entitlement is, and he's going to go off on his own and he's going to do his own thing. Does that sound familiar to you? Because that really is this feature of human life. And everybody has experimented in the relationship with God and wondering, why do I have to, you know, be chaste? Why do I have to be generous? Um, you know, why can't I live uh, like everybody else? Well, the answer is, is if you go and try to live outside of God's law, it leads to ha a great unhappiness. But it's rooted in an understanding of what it means to be a human being. If you've never read, I've only read snippets from Jean-Paul Sartre. I just never thought that it was worthwhile reading them. But he says, one of the things that he says is real freedom is existence precedes essence. You may have heard this. Existence precedes essence because it really is very large in American culture. In Planned Parenthood versus Casey, Remember, the Supreme Court said every human being gets to decide for himself the meaning of life. Uh, no, life has a meaning, and you really just need to deal with it, is the Catholic perspective. Nobody gets to decide truth for themselves. You either believe in the truth or you're off in some weird error. 
Um, but the idea that you can just think it and make it true, this has been in our country for a long time. It was called in the 19th century new thought uh, or uh, the power of positive thinking. If you remember the preaching of the, um, at the uh, Crystal Cathedral by Robert Schuller, that really goes back into Protestantism in the early 19th century, a man named Phineas Quimby, where basically your mind formed reality. And he was preaching this when he came from, I think, Ireland to the United States. All great heresies always start with the Irish. Uh, remember, Pelagianism uh, came to us through an Irish monk. But Quimby came out of a philosophical setting in the 18th century, uh, started by Immanuel Kant, where Kant basically asserted that you really couldn't know reality. You could just know phenomena, the noumena, that is what lies beyond reality is really always concealed from us. And so it's how you think about things. It became German idealism, if, I, if I'm understanding the philosophy correctly, that really we interact with reality um, through our minds and how we conceive of reality through our minds. Well, it's true, our minds have a lot to do with conceiving reality. But either you perceive it correctly or you perceive it incorrectly. And this is the difference between science and magic. Science perceives reality correctly. That's why vaccines really do have an effect. Even if it's not 100% effective, it has an important effect. It's not magic. It's not a wand waved over somebody to protect them from COVID-19. Magical thinking is you make something happen because you think it that way. Well, that's one way of understanding Sartre, that existence precedes essence. But he probably really met it in terms of the moral law. Sartre was an atheist. And if you're an atheist, then you basically make up the moral law for yourself because it doesn't exist. So think of this first son who separates himself from the father's house. He goes out and lives in a foreign land outside of Israel. Think of the Babylonian exile, thinking about living under the unclean Gentiles. And he just falls into these practices that are contrary to everything his dad taught him. And he thinks that is true freedom. The first son's experience of that understanding of freedom is it ended in despair and disaster for him. You really, I don't think I'm preaching to the choir, but it's not an exercise of freedom to just act, to just um, engage in adultery, promiscuity, drugs, and alcohol abuse. But the second son is a different story. The second son really does what his father asks. He says, I've served you faithfully. Well, a legalist is a person who thinks of themselves as just living by somebody else's rules. And that also runs in our culture. You gotta fill in all the blanks, right? You gotta uh, fill in all the little uh, circles because this is how you move ahead in the educational system or you become a professional or you work. And then this is how you're supposed to move ahead because you do everything that's required of you. And if someone skips around you who doesn't do what's required of you, you believe it's unjust, and it probably is, because somebody is playing favorites. That's what really upsets you because you've obeyed all the rules. Legalism is the belief 
that morality just reduces to rules. Kant actually thought that up. It's called deontological ethics. Um, it's just really about rules uh, and applying rules. There was a time in our church history where the Jesuits practiced what's called casuistry, where they would take the rules into various imaginary moral dilemmas, and they would tell you how to reason through every single one of them. Thank God we got away from that, because casuistry is a legalistic way of thinking which short-circuits your conscience. So what's it like to live in the Father's house? Freedom from God is not living in the Father's house. Living legalistically, you never enter into the Father's house because remember the second son refuses to come into the party because he's obeyed all the rules, but he's not getting what he wants. And if he's not getting what he wants, my friends, he's not dancing. Both of these ways are ways to exclude yourself from the Father's house. The great St. John Paul II wrote a papal encyclical, Dignitatis Humanum, the dignity of the human person. It declared that the right of every person to religious freedom defined an immunity from coercion in matters of conscience by any human agent, including the state and the church. He famously said in that document, we, I think it's in that document, we can propose, we can never impose. It means we can't impose our religion on people and we can't impose our decisions of how other persons' consciences should work on them. Pope Francis said it, we're called to form consciences, not supplant them. And so here's what John Paul said in Dignitatis Humanum. God calls men to serve him in spirit and in truth. Hence they are bound in conscience, but they stand under no compulsion. God is regard for the dignity of the human person, whom he himself created, and man is to be guided by his own judgment, and he is to enjoy freedom. Uh, the dignity of the human pe person and conscience is part of the ancient teaching of the church. And like all of our ancient teachings, it's been honored or dishonored uh, through the ages. But St. John Henry Newman put it this way, because he was the great champion of conscience. If a man is culpable of being an error, which he might have escaped had he been more in earnest, for that error, not knowing the truth, he is answerable to God. But still he must act according to that error because he's in full sincerity thinks his error to be the truth. You can't violate people by forcing things on them. All you can try to do is, is form conscience and help people act according to conscience. Remove obstacles. So we dispense from conscience when we assert our conscience decides what's truth. That's the problem of Planned Parenthood versus Casey. You get to decide whether God exists. You get to decide what the moral law is. That's absolute nonsense. You don't get to decide whether you have a pink Cadillac out in the parking lot. That's just nonsense. You get to decide whether you're going to respond to Jesus or not. This is the beginning of the act of the conscience. And when you respond to Jesus, then you're lined up to go into the Father's house. So how do you do that? Conscience must be informed. It must seek to inform itself by the truth and then make practical judgments according to moral truth. I'm going to take a moment in the last section here of this episode of Oral Valley Catholic on conscience. I want to take a little bit and talk about the importance of conscience and how confession helps us to form more attentive consciences. 
St. John Henry Newman said that conscience is the echo of God's voice, the primordial experience of God's voice inside every human being. Obviously, you can kill the voice of conscience, but conscience exists in everybody, and you either listen to it or not. Uh, Even sociopaths have the truth proposed to them. There may be obstacles in how their brain works or the trauma to their personalities, but still they have access at some level to the truth of God. The Catechism talks about conscience and says it's twofold. First, it's a moral sense, and then it's a sense of duty. And so you have a sense of what right and wrong is, and that imposes a sense of duty. The feeling of guilt and shame is when you do not meet your duties according according to what you know is true, because human beings are made for the truth. But although we talk about it in two ways, as a moral sense and a sense of duty, really it's one indivisible experience of how it is that we respond to the God's voice. So think about about morality, both in your life and the life of the young people that you know. It has to be cultivated and it has to be taught. Human beings aren't naturally good. We're not naturally evil either. But there is this um, fault line that goes down the middle of every human being. I think that's the best way to understand ourselves. Maybe it's tweaked one way or the other according to our personality. But the errors um, uh, errors about conscience are like this. To feel that conscience is relative, um, that truth, moral truth is relative, that's a huge uh, experience in, in America. That's true for you, but it's not true for me. That's relativism. What's true in Tucson is not true in Phoenix. Um, it, it's one of the reasons I think our country is so divided, because we don't even accept that there's a moral truth that binds us all. But the other error about conscience could be subjectivism. The idea that my conscience, and this comes from a philosopher named David Hume, All morality, you would say, is just uh, emotion. It's about how you feel. Well, the truth is, feeling is involved in morality. That's where guilt and shame come from. And if you tell people not to feel guilt and shame, and if you bought into what David Hume said, you were telling them to kill their conscience. Why would you want to create a society of sociopaths? America has not been wise on these issues, partly because it's a predominantly Protestant culture and they have a, this really this sense that human beings can do good. And so for them, moral action is whatever the greatest good is. But that is hard to do if you argue that the greatest good involves dropping atomic weapons on Nagasaki and Hiroshima because it protects the lives of a million point two soldiers, sailors, and Marines. Well, how many pregnant women did you incinerate? How can you turn around and say abortion is wrong then? in the United States if that woman says the greatest good is served. The idea that morality is about the greatest good uh, and emotivism, which are related ideas, is really just uh, another step towards anarchy. So think about conscience as knowing the truth and then acting on it. Errors about conscience are relativism. What's true at point A is not true at point B. What was true on Thursday is not true on Sunday. Or subjectivism. I feel this, I feel that. My personal truth is, all nonsense, 
And then what I think the Catholic error is that older brother, right? The one who's always served his dad. He, Catholics tend to be legalists. Uh, we have all these rules and we just want to slap them down. This is not conscience. The problem of conscience, moral duty, and moral truth, moral duty, it, it requires a decision. Mostly moral action is not just about one moral duty. Often there are competing moral duties. A really good example would be, you know, a friend is committing adultery. Do you tell their spouse? Wow, well, you have to tell the truth. They're going to be ticked if you don't tell them, right? And you don't want to destroy that relationship. Maybe it's your brother who's going to be affected or your sister by this news. What do you do? Because you might blow up that whole family. Maybe it's just a one-time deal. You see, you're caring about the integrity of the family, the integrity of somebody's uh, reputation, the integrity of a marriage. There's a lot of competing circumstances along with the various rules about thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt tell the truth, thou sh you should not uh, harm your neighbor, you should wish the good of your neighbor. These are not simple decisions. So how do we cultivate the conscience? We cultivate our conscience by making a good examine of conscience. And it's not just making a laundry list of particular infractions. It's really taking a look at how it is that we make moral decisions and how we sometimes make very bad moral decisions. It could be that we don't detach ourselves enough uh, from uh, thoughts in our minds that bring us to, well, lust is an example. Uh, pornography is rampant in our culture. Or anger. Anger gives us, if we indulge anger and let it take reign in our hearts, pretty soon it's going to come out in what we say and what we do. But it was really set up, the immorality of what we say and what we do is set up because we didn't confess the sin of wrath, one of the seven deadly sins. Do you remember Jesus' call to conversion when he says repent? The word he uses is metanoia, change how you think. This is the key. If you want to have a healthy conscience, you have to think like a son in the Father's house. Not subjectivism, not relativism, not legalism, but you have these competing moral duties. Nobody can supplant your uh, conscience. The priest cannot tell you what to do. You gotta make the decision. So what are you gonna do? Because if you look at the parable of the prodigal son, which has officially been rebranded as the parable of the two sons, remember, one flees from the father's voice, and when he lives outside of the way that human life is structured. He just falls into sleeping with the pigs. The other listens to everything the father says, but only sees it as rules, never as relationship. And he's always has a clear understanding what he and that younger son should do. Never gets the ambiguity of how it is that you learn to grow in love. To live in the father's house is to start with this. Friend, you're beloved of God. You have been saved. And so as you try to use your understanding of the truth and make choices in your life, don't be upset that sometimes acts of conscience are difficult. They're made to be that way because that's how God changes and transforms you into his son. As long as you always remember that you are in a relationship of love in your father's house. This has been Oro Valley Catholic. 
We'll see you at confession. Uh, It's a joyous thing, and God bless you.